Hello all, how is that break for you then? A warm welcome to the brand new series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and it's still a show that seeks out and covers the more obscure and unfamiliar crimes from all corners of the UK. And I'm still Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, and in the words of Liam Gallagher himself, definitely not Gary Glitter, hello, hello, it's good to be back. And it really is. A break was necessary because it had been a full-on, crazy busy year, which I managed to fit two full series into. But what a year. And I'm not only now recharged and refocused, but I'm a bit ahead of myself because I've worked harder than Barry White's belt and have a few episodes nailed down and all ready to go ahead of the new series. So old friends of the show, welcome back. And new friends, well, it's great to have you here. It means so much and I thoroughly appreciate it hope this episode finds everybody well. Now during the break I haven't pissed about with the show's format very much at all. The music may differ every now and again because it's good to freshen up on occasion but I'm keeping everything else how it's worked out so far. It's a show format that I'm happy with and hopefully that will come across and make for a better more entertaining episode. The same with the show's Patreon page. There's been a couple of tweaks and for long-time supporters, I do urge you to check the amount that you pledge, should you still wish to, of course, as I don't want anybody overpaying. I did release a bonus Patreon episode during the break, and the latest one has actually gone out today also, episode number 10. So back with a double enthusiast this week. Thanks very much to my latest supporters of the show on Patreon during the break, namely Jennifer Barbie, Chandra Moreau, Claire Sweeter Miller, Hakeem Olasende, Jane Squire, Steve Hall, Leslie Slaney, Catherine Hubicki, Sarah Edwards, Karen Kirk, Nancy Perron, Julie Caro, and Tanya Ostinowitz. If I've mispronounced anybody's names there, I do apologise. It's most kind of you all to support the show, and I hope that you've enjoyed the bonus episodes and the small tokens that have been sent out to some. And any of you guys can join in and support the show as well, should you like. Just head over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on Patreon to see what being a show supporter brings. Or there's a convenient link to the page alongside my social media links with the episode show notes. See, told you, nothing at all has been pissed about with. And just to prove this, it's promo time now, and I have a promo to start the new series off from a relatively new podcast. It's a UK one that's fast become one of my favourites called One Eye Open. And it's a true crime one run by a charming host called Steffi, who picks some of the best cases to cover that you could imagine. Time is spent choosing and researching the cases, and the shows throughout each episode, they're absolutely top quality. So if you haven't heard it already, then have a listen to this. Hello, I'm Steffi, the host of One Eye Open my very own true crime podcast. I write, research and produce each episode from my fancy little room here in England. Join me as I delve deeply into mysterious murders and painful punishments. The terrible tales are real, and although dark, I'm sure they'll appeal. I've been described as the Mary Poppins of true crime, but you'll need more than a spoonful of sugar to help these crimes go down. I'd recommend a gin and tonic, a large one. If you like your true crime served with ice, lemon and a touch of class, then come and find me, Steffi, on my podcast One Eye Open. I'll be waiting for you.
Cheers, Steffi. It especially appeals to me because, apart from the excellent research and detail of each episode, in the host I see a bit of a kindred spirit there, really. The cases so far on the show are the exact type that I'd favour to cover myself, and I have nothing but praise because it really is great. You can find One Eye Open on iTunes, Podcast Addict and all of the usual places that you get your show from. Plus look out for the show on social media also. Get yourself a G&T as Steffi advises and go and check it out. And so to the premiere episode of Season 3 of the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast. Now to most people the term contract killer or hitman conjures up images seen in such films as Pulp Fiction or Leon, or the one I prefer myself, the 1972 Charles Bronson classic The Mechanic, which is well worth digging out if you haven't seen it, it's excellent. It was remade a couple of years ago with Jason Statham, but don't even go there for that one, because it is absolute bollocks. In films, always go for the originals. But a contract killer was, for a time, considered to be a very un-British kind of criminal, although, of course, they do exist. Court number two of the Old Bailey in London was to hear what is one of the most horrific and almost unbelievable tales concerning murder for hire at a trial there in 1980. It resulted in a jury sending two men to prison for nearly quarter of a century based on the shocking testimony of a self-confessed killer who remains in a UK prison serving a whole life tariff to this day. This episode contains graphic descriptions of crimes and actions, including the murder of a child, so discretion is advised when listening as always. With that in mind, welcome or welcome back, and please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week, to start the series, we look at the case of London's Murder Incorporated. So the story starts with a proper old-school London crime, an armed robbery. If you've ever watched The Sweeney, imagine heavily tooled-up Cockney East End villains, all violent and shouting, Get down, you slag, you slag, etc. Basically, The Long Good Friday, which is another excellent film, by the way, or pretty much anything that has Ray Winston in. On the morning of 20th of June 1979, a team of five of these villains ambushed a security van that was collecting money from a bank in the centre of the market town of Hartford, the county town of Hertfordshire. As one of the guards carrying a container of money walked to his armoured transit van, he was accosted by a boiler-suited man who pressed a handgun into his back. With an air of menace, he forced the other guard to let the rest of the gang, another four men all dressed in boiler suits, on board the van. The entire gang was heavily armed with a variety of pistols and pump-action shotguns, and once they were all on board, all of the men placed on masks. The robbers then calmly told the security officers to continue on their routine collection around the areas of Welwyn Garden City in Hatfield, all the while threatening the guards with certain death if they raised the alarm or attempted to escape. Eventually, with more than half a million pounds on board, the robbers forced the guards to drive to a remote location and stop. They were then bundled out of the van and into a remote public lavatory, where they were tied up and gagged and left locked in one of the toilet cubicles. The gang then stripped off the boiler suit overalls and masks that they'd worn for the raid, also leaving them in the lavatory, and sped off in a waiting van with the sacks of money. But the robbers had made one small but absolutely vital mistake. 
In one of the pockets of the overalls that the robbers had worn, which were found by police when the alarm was raised, a numbered ignition key to a BMW 320 series car was found. As it was numbered, it was of course traceable, and after contacting BMW HQ in Germany, Hertfordshire police were able to determine that after manufacture, the car that particular key fitted had been supplied to an Essex garage. Further inquiries at the garage revealed that the vehicle belonged to one Philip Cohen, a middle-aged wealthy East London greengrocer, and someone long suspected by Scotland Yard as being part of the criminal fraternity as a member of an armed robbery syndicate. Cohen was subsequently arrested by Hertfordshire Police and interrogated, and he admitted his involvement in the robbery, rolled over and gave the identities of the other four robbers. Three of these were rounded up in a series of dawn raids after this, but one of the gang was missed. Among those arrested was a small-time petty crook named John Henry Childs, who sometimes went by the name Bruce, whilst the member of the gang who was missed in the police raids was a well-known London villain named Henry McKenney, perhaps better known as Big Harry or Big H. Because these were all London-based villains, the Met Police flying squad, the Sweeney itself, was called in and went up to Hertfordshire to question the robbers, sure that they were a team responsible for other unsolved robberies in the London area, and hoping that at least one of the gang would roll over further and confess to other unsolved robberies in an attempt to avoid a lengthy prison sentence. Flying squad detectives were to get much more than they bargained for. Philip Cohen, the first robber who was arrested, was so desperate to avoid the 20-year prison sentence he was facing that he told Flying Squad detectives, I can go better than armed robberies. Big Harry, John Childs and Terry Pinfold have been doing murders for years. Cohen claimed that the three men he had named had killed at least four people and other members of the gang when questioned added to the tale with two more possible killings to be attributed to the three. Out of the six names given as victims, the only names police were familiar with were those of haulage contractor George Brett and his 10-year-old son Terry, who had disappeared in 1975 in majorly suspicious circumstances. In early January that year, Brett had gone on a business meeting and had taken Terry with him and his Mercedes had subsequently been found abandoned three days later at King's Cross Station, but there was no trace of Brett or the boy. Neither had ever been seen or heard from since, despite a large police inquiry. Detectives had always believed that the pair had been murdered. Every police officer had his or her theory about what had happened, and the underworld buzzed with rumours about the missing father and son. And now, Flying Squad Chief Inspector Tony Lundy and his team were hearing stories that the pair had been lured to a converted church hall and executed in cold blood with a submachine gun in a contract killing. And that was just two of the murders. It was claimed that there was at least another four. Terry Pinfold, one of the three men named and who was in prison for armed robbery at the time of the Security Express robbery, had been Henry McKenney's business partner in a company specialising in making diving equipment and life jackets. H.J. Marine, which had been operating as a business since 1972. The company had been based at an old converted church hall in Hayden Road in the Essex town of Dagenham, and Childs, who'd been in prison with Pinfold when the two became friends, 
came to work there following his release in 1974. Childs had gotten to know McKenney after this. But this talk about murder for hire seemed just too fantastic to believe, until detectives began a check on the list of other supposed victims, and what had seemed to be fantasy took a disturbing turn towards fact. So Pinfold was in prison and police would get to question him any time. Childs was under arrest, but McKenney was still a missing person. With the help of Philip Cohen, he'd set up an elaborate alibi for himself for the Security Express robbery. A week before, on the 13th of June, McKenney, his mistress Gwen Andrews and her two children flew to Marseille from London for a holiday. They checked into a small hotel when they arrived there and for the next couple of days McKenney went out of his way to make a point of being noticed in bars that were frequented by British tourists. On the 17th of June, McKenney, Gwen and the children left the hotel very early in the morning telling staff and fellow tourists beforehand that they were going on a camping tour of the region for a few days before returning. Whilst Gwen took the children to a remote Marseille campsite, McKenney caught the morning flight from Marseille Airport to Paris. He then caught a taxi across the city to the Gare du Nord railway station, and at 9am he rang Philip Cohen back in England, who was waiting with a powerboat across the English Channel in Brighton. Once he'd received the call, Cohen set out in the boat to make a 2pm rendezvous with McKenney at Boulogne. However, McKenney missed his connecting train to make this rendezvous, and was forced to make the journey by taxi paying double fare to make sure he made the 200km journey on time. He did just manage to make it on time, and both men then set off back across the channel to Brighton, where McKenney was smuggled ashore and driven to Cohen's home in Upminster. For the next few days, the final robbery plans were completed, and on Wednesday the 20th of June, the two men led the gang that stole more than half a million pounds from the Security Express collection. Following this, for three days, McKenney lay low once again at Cohen's house, before heading back to London's Victoria Station. He then caught the Saturday night boat train to Paris, heading through New Haven and Dieppe. Early the next morning, the train arrived at the Gare du Nord, and McKenney took a taxi across Paris to Orly, where he caught the morning flight to Marseille. He then collected Gwen and the children from their campsite, and returned to the hotel that they'd stayed in up until a week before. Once back here, he continued his task of making himself known, and hoping that with any luck, his new friends would think that he'd just been away camping. But John Childs was in custody, and on the 6th of July 1979, he was visited by Detective Chief Superintendent Frank Cater, an experienced London detective who'd been part of the team that had smashed both the Cray and Richardson gangs, and who'd been put in overall charge of the case. When Cater sat down with Childs, he wasn't disappointed. Unlike Pinfold or McKenney, Childs wasn't a hard man, and Cater's police instinct told him that this would be the one of the three who would most likely fold. He told Childs that they wanted to speak to him about six murders, but given him only the names of Ronald Andrews and Terence Eve, two of the named victims. Cater told Childs that he could have time to think about his options and that steps could be taken, if necessary, to assure both the safety of Childs and his family. Later that same day, Childs gave police the bare details of all six murders. 
but on the following day he asked for protection for himself, his wife and family, and for a deal that ensured he did not spend the rest of his life in prison. He was also insistent that he saw his wife Tina before he spoke any further. Told that he must give his account before he saw his wife, Childs agreed to discuss the murder of Ronald Andrews before he saw Tina. He declined the offer of a solicitor and under caution then gave an account of what had happened to Ronald Andrews. Whilst doing this he was visited by Tina and after he'd seen and spoken to her he agreed to give a full account of the other crimes. Childs went on to explain how McKenney had told him that he was fed up with being an armed robber, claiming that every time a witness to a robbery described one of the robbers as being over six feet in height, Scotland Yard always came and took him in for questioning. Most probably that was warranted, of course. According to Childs, McKenney had suggested, it would be a lot easier to do people in for money. This had been the germ that Murder Incorporated had sprung from. Acting on information received from Childs, Flying Squad detectives went to the house of a female friend of his, in whose loft Childs had hidden some luggage just after the Hartford robbery. Police retrieved these items and found two metal boxes and a canvas bag, which turned out to be a small arsenal. Six handguns were found, including a Walther automatic pistol, a rare Rona 8mm automatic, an Enfield 38 pistol with silencer, and three Webley .455 pistols. There were also four pump-action shotguns, a Belgian .22 rifle, and a Mannlicher sporting rifle with telescopic sight. There was also a Mark II Sten machine gun with a homemade silencer and pistol grip. Reading all of those out, I felt like I was reenacting the scene from Terminator where Arnie arms himself at the gun store just before he kills the old guy from Gremlins. Do you know the scene that I mean? course you do everybody knows that don't they in what was to be two weeks of carefully recorded questioning john childs gave the murder squad the full gory details and disturbing exploits he soon warmed to his storytelling claiming at one point in a calm and chilling manner i don't murder people i disappear them disappearing people is smooth slick sensible it's the thinking man's way the accounts that Childs went on to tell are some of the most nauseating and shocking that any police officer must have ever heard. They're retold here not in the confession order that Childs gave, but in chronological order, and they go as follows, based on Childs' own story. Murder 1. Terence, Teddy Bear Eve The victim was to be toymaker Terence Eve, known as Teddy Bear on account of the soft toy-making business that he ran. In 1974, McKenney and Pinfold had been running their small business manufacturing diving equipment in the converted church hall in Hayden Road in Dagenham. The premises were shared by Eve, who rented a unit in part of the church hall to run his business manufacturing toys. Although the business was initially his own, by July 1974 it was registered as a partnership between Eve and Terry Pinfold's wife. It was a successful business that ticked over and profited nicely, and Pinfold ultimately wanted this business for himself, resulting in a number of discussions with Childs as to the best way of getting rid of Eve and taking over. Pinfold decided that if Eve were simply thrown out, he may enlist the aid of his family to wreak revenge and cause trouble. So it was agreed that Eve was to be killed, 
Then Pinfold would take over the company and give Charles and McKenney £100 per week out of the profits. At first, the delivery van used for delivering soft toys was considered as a possible murder location, but it was discarded and it was decided on using the factory premises itself, to which Pinfold agreed, providing the body was not left there. He put forward the grisly solution of using an industrial minting machine to dispose of the body, and one was procured that had been advertised for sale for £25 in the Exchange and Mark magazine. The gruesome disposal, it was decided, would be carried out not at the factory, but at Charles's ground floor flat at Dolphin House in the East London district of Poplar. At about 7.30pm on the evening of the 1st of November 1974, 34 years ago to the very day that this episode drops, Eve left his home in a van belonging to the business to make some deliveries of soft toys to a customer. Knowing that he would be returning to the factory late that evening to drop off the van keys, as this was a regular occurrence, Charles and McKenney stayed late in the workshop waiting for Eve to return. When Eve returned to the factory late that evening after making his delivery, he had no idea that he was about to die. He cheerfully greeted McKenney, expressing surprise that he was working so late. Using the pretense that he had something to show him, McKenney led Eve into a covered alleyway at the rear of the premises and bolted the door behind him. He then attacked Eve and began to strike him savagely over the head with a length of hydraulic hose that had several steel nuts fixed to one end, whilst Childs, who'd been hidden behind a curtain, jumped out and also attacked Eve with a hammer, striking him a number of times in the face with it. When the pair had finished battering him, Eve was then strangled with a piece of rope. The alleyway was covered in blood, so Charles threw buckets of water over the floor and walls. Then both men stripped off their bloodied clothing and McKenney used his jeans to block the gap at the bottom of the door to prevent blood from seeping through into the car park. This gives you a kind of idea of the horrendous injuries that Terence Eve must have suffered. The two men then spent the remainder of that night carefully removing all traces of the carnage they'd just committed even going so far as to use sulfuric acid to remove the bloodstains to the floor. Eve's corpse was then wrapped in a tarpaulin and loaded into the boot of McKenney's car, where it was driven the few miles to the slaughterhouse that had been prepared at Charles's flat. Dumping the body in the front room, in which the carpets and furniture had been carefully lined with plastic sheeting, McKenney had then sawn off one of Eve's legs, before moving the body to the bath to continue dismemberment, using an axe, saw and knives. Over the next few hours, Eve's body was dismembered, and once this was complete, the pieces of his body were attempted to be fed through the mincing machine, but they hit a snag with this, because it jammed. The domestic electricity supply was not strong enough to drive the motor of the mincer, and the pair were forced to try something else. An attempt was made to flush the pieces of the body down the lavatory, but this proved time-consuming and largely ineffective, and eventually they decided to burn the remains in the fire grate in the living room. This task took the remainder of the weekend to complete, but following this, all that remained was fragments of charred bone. These were then ground up into dust and mixed with the ashes from the fire and were disposed of by scattering them from a car window whilst driving along the A13 over the Barking Bypass. Three days after Eve's death, 
the soft toy business was incorporated with Pinfold's wife as sole director and owner of 99% of the issued shares. Following the success of their first murder, the three men held a policy meeting and the result of that was that we were going into the murder business, Childs told police. Mr Pinfold would be our agent, Mr McKenney would kill and in any trouble I would assist him to kill. Disposals would be at my place and in the case of anyone cracking up, the other two would get rid of that member. What a business plan that is, eh? I can't really see that on Dragon's Den, can you? Mind you, Peter Jones would probably invest in it if it was. The word then began being put out that Britain's own Murder Incorporated was open for business. Some sources claim this was done quite understandably low-key. Others claim that no bones were made about it whatsoever. The three were upfront about the murder for higher ventures. And one source goes so far as to claim that even the family of Lord Lucan was approached to see if they wanted any business done. When word spread among the criminal underworld, it wasn't long before they had their first paying customer. But they'd killed again before that. Again, this wasn't a killing for profit, but out of necessity. And if the murder of Terence Eve seemed like bloodlust itself, this next one took it to a different level again. Murder 2. Robert Brown Robert Brown was a petty criminal and former professional wrestler whose ring name had been the White Angel. He was an old friend of Terence Eves and he'd been employed at the toy factory where he also lived in a small part of the rear. He'd been there on the night of Eves' murder and although he'd not witnessed the actual killing he had seen the clean-up operations happening afterwards. When Eve had disappeared Brown had twigged what had gone on and had kept his mouth shut through pure fear of what would happen to him. However, McKenney had decided that it was too risky to keep him alive. He knew too much and would have to be eliminated. Before they could get to kill him though, Brown was jailed for burglary offences, but he escaped from Chelmsford Jail and went on the run, eventually making his way to the flat of an old acquaintance for help, Terry Pinfold. Pinfold sent him to Charles' flat in Poplar, telling Brown that he would be safe there to lie low. When Brown turned up at the flat, under the false pretense that Charles and McKenney would harbour him after he'd kept his mouth shut, he was welcomed in. As the front door to the flat closed, McKenney shot him three times in the face and head from close range with a silenced pistol. But Robert Brown was a tough, large man, who, as I said, had once been a professional wrestler, and he didn't die easily. There followed another horrific scene as he struggled for his life, although he was gravely wounded. Childs took down from the wall of the flat one of the many weapons that he'd fixed about there as ornaments, a favoured seven-inch diver's knife, and he plunged it repeatedly into Brown's chest, while McKenney embedded a fireman's axe into Brown's skull. Yet he still struggled, and it took the unfortunate man being pinned to the floor with a sword that was stuck through his heart to finally kill him. Childs told in graphic detail, I unsheathed a short sword stick and stabbed him in the belly, running the blade up into his heart. There then followed the now traditional ritual of dismemberment and burning of the body parts in the grate at Dolphin House. Murders 3 and 4, George and Terry Brett 
According to Childs, it was George Brett's liking of a fight that led to his death. On the 4th of October 1973, Brett was involved in a bloody brawl in a pub with another man named Leonard Thompson, or Big Lenny, of which Brett came out on top. There was a substantial history of bad blood between the two men, with Thompson, who lived nearby to the farm that George Brett lived on near South End, with his wife Hilda and two children, being Brett's landlord. A long-standing row over rent arrears came to a head one night in a pub, and Brett, armed with an iron bar, battered his axe-wielding opponent Thompson senseless, putting him in hospital with a fractured skull. Childs claimed that Thompson had paid McKenney, who was a friend of his, £1,800 to kill Brett in revenge for the beating, and as Brett had given evidence against him in the resulting court case, where Thompson had received a suspended prison sentence for malicious wounding. The initial fee for the murder was £2,000, but because Thompson had supplied a Sten machine gun to do the job with, the killers knocked off £200 from the fee. On the 2nd of January 1975, Childs had blackened his beard and hair with boot polish to disguise his appearance, and had called at the farm with a view to discussing the haulage contract with Brett but he was away that day on a job. After further telephone contact, on the 4th of January 1975, Childs once again returned to the Brett farm. He was now dressed in a smart business suit, polished shoes, an overcoat and a Homburg hat, and by all accounts appeared as a respectable businessman named Mr Jennings. Childs had arranged to take Brett to the factory in Hayden Road to show him the load that he wanted hauling and to arrange a price for this but the car he was using, a blue Jaguar with false number plates, wouldn't start. Sending his son Terry to fetch a length of washing line, Brett towed the Jaguar using his own Mercedes to get it started and arranged to follow Jennings to the factory in his own car. Terry jumped into the passenger seat with his father and came along for the ride. Brett, perhaps suspecting that he was being set up for a revenge attack at the hands of Thompson, had no qualms about taking his 10-year-old son Terry with him. It would ensure his safety. He believed that the underworld code of honour would prevent anything happening with the child being present. Arriving at the factory mid-afternoon, George and Terry Brett took in the untidy premises that they'd been taken to. It was an old church hall that had been converted long before for light industrial use and was separated into two halves. One half was seemingly devoted to the manufacture of a soft toy business, while the other half seemed to be an engineering company, H.J. Marine, that specialised in the construction of underwater diving equipment. Well, as if you're going to have overwater diving equipment, yeah. The floor of the hall was completely covered in children's teddy bears and stuffed toys, and racks around the wall contained a multitude of diving gear and breathing apparatus. Amidst all this clutter, a very large, powerful-looking man was bent over a workbench. As Brett was being shown the pile of toys and diving gear that Mr Jennings claimed was to be his load, he was invited to sit down on a chair whilst the boy was given a stuffed teddy bear to play with. Suddenly, the man at the workbench produced a silenced automatic Sten machine gun and shot George Brett through the head. He was killed instantly, but as Brett fell to the floor, the callous killer, who was of course McKenney, came closer and shot him through the head a second time 
to ensure that he was definitely dead. Then he turned his attention to the shocked, sobbing ten-year-old boy who was still holding the teddy bear. Whilst Jennings grabbed the boy and held him in a tight grip with his hand clamped over his mouth, McKenney moved around and coldly fired a single shot into the side of Terry's head. He died instantly. Charles was seemingly shocked by this and claimed that this was not part of their plan, saying in his confession, If I had had a gun in my hand at that moment, I swear I would have shot Harry to pieces. I could not believe that he'd gone ahead and murdered the boy as well. As God is my witness, that's right, I would not willingly become a child murderer. To deal with the Brett car, Terry Pinfold was telephoned and summoned to the factory. Before he left the premises to dump the car, McKenney grabbed Pinfold and smeared his face with the blood of the Bretts to drive home the message, You're involved and there's no going back. Pinfold then took Brett's blue Mercedes, registration number VGB488H, and abandoned it near to London's King's Cross station, where it was found on the 7th of January. A subsequent forensic examination of the vehicle disclosed nothing of relevance apart from the washing line that had been used as a tow rope which was still in the boot. Whilst Pinfold took the car, the bodies of George and Terry Brett were then taken to the compressor shed at the rear of the premises, where both of George Brett's legs were then sewn off. Both bodies were then placed in dustbins, then transported to the Poplar Slaughterhouse in Charles's van where the gruesome task of dismembering and burning the body parts began. This again took the rest of the weekend, and the remains were disposed of in the now familiar fashion, some ashes being dumped from a moving vehicle, whilst others were disposed of in an East London canal. Later examination of Charles's flat had revealed a dustbin in the pram store with traces of human blood group A on it, the same blood group as George Brett's, but also the same as 42% of the population at the time. By now, certainly relishing the horror that he was instilling in the listening officers, because this is the stuff of nightmares to hear, isn't it, really? Childs even claimed that McKenney had kept one of George Brett's eyes as a souvenir, washing it in the sink and wrapping it up in toilet paper. Murder 5 Freddie Sherwood Following a move to London from the seaside town of Hearn Bay in 1972, Sherwood and his wife had converted a property they owned into a rest home for the elderly, which Mrs Sherwood ran whilst her husband ran a separate venture, the old vicarage nursing home, in another property in the Hearn Bay area. By 1976 they'd purchased yet another property, with the intention of also using this as a rest home, and they'd commissioned builder Paul Morton Thirtle to carry out substantial building works to the property. These works hadn't gone smoothly, and there was some dispute between the two men about this, but in the summer of 1978, Morton Thirtle had agreed to purchase the Sherwood's first rest home from them. The fifth killing, Childs claimed, was commissioned by Paul Morton Thirtle in July 1978, because he owed Freddie Sherwood a large sum of money from this property that he wasn't in a position to repay, and he was being pressured to do so. This killing provided yet another payday, albeit this one with an obscene twist. 
it was effectively murder on higher purchase. According to Childs, he and McKenney had been offered £4,000 to kill Sherwood by Morton Thurtle, who they knew as Paul Hammond, with a deal involving a deposit of 1500 of the fee up front, with another five instalments of £500 to follow each month following completion of the job. The contract had been obtained between six and eight weeks before the murder, and Charles and McKenney had reconnoitred Herne Bay twice, looking for a prospective location to carry out the killing. The eventual plan that they'd come up with to do this was quite straightforward. After hearing that Sherwood was trying to sell his white Rover car for £1,000, it was time for Mr Jennings to gain to resurface. Posing once again as the smart businessman, Charles went to see the car and agreed to purchase it. He showed Sherwood £500 in notes and asked if he could test drive the vehicle back to Dagenham, where if he liked it, he would pay the remainder of the asking price in cash. Sherwood agreed and the two men set off in the vehicle, a short time later pulling up outside a bungalow in Hayden Road, one next to the converted church where Terence Eve, George Brett and Terry Brett had, unbeknown to anyone bar the killers, lost their lives. McKenney's Bungalow Childs let himself in and Sherwood followed, taking a seat at the table in the front room. Childs poured them both a drink and then placed a wad of notes onto the table, the remainder of the fee for the car. As Sherwood picked them up and began counting them out, McKenney stepped into the room and shot him through the back of the head. The first shot passed straight through Sherwood's head and shattered the whiskey glass Charles was holding in his hand before hitting the table. But this didn't kill Sherwood instantly. He rose up and turned towards McKenney. So Charles finished the unfortunate man off by clubbing him over the head with a two-pound ball-pane hammer. McKenney then shot him in the head for a second time. The now familiar routine clicked into gear then. Sherwood's legs were sawn off and the parts placed in bins to make it easier to transport the body in Charles's van on the by now polished and familiar final journey over to Poplar for disposal. Murder 6. Ronald Andrews Ronald Andrews' murder was again one of a personal nature. There was no contract taken out on him. For many years, Ronald Andrews and Henry McKenney had been great and close friends but then McKenney had taken a liking to Andrews' wife Gwen, and he'd begun an affair with her. He wasn't just content with having his wife, he also wanted Andrews' big house as well. To a man like McKenney, the solution was simple. He had no more qualms about killing one of his best friends than he did a complete stranger. As usual, Childs, who Andrews had never met, was a willing helper. For a sum of just £400 and a new silencer for one of his guns, he helped McKenney to do the job. This again was a callous and calculated plan. According to Childs, McKenney's plan was to exacerbate the relations between Andrews and his wife so that his disappearance might be explicable as a desire to get away from her. To aid this... Both Childs and Childs's wife Tina had made calls to the Andrews home claiming to be from a lover, so that both Gwen and Ron would have suspicions about the other's conduct. Tina Childs had even written a postcard to Andrews that suggested it was from a girlfriend of his, 
and this had been posted from Wisbeck in Lincolnshire on the 5th of September 1978. The ploy worked because both the Andrews now began round with each other, each accusing the other of being unfaithful, which of course Gwen Andrews was. All the while, McKenney played the sympathetic friend to Ronald Andrews, and he never in turn once suspected that the friend whose shoulder he was crying on was actually the one who was nobbing his wife, and the man who was plotting to kill him. McKenney then became more brazen, booking a room at an Essex motel for the night of 11th of October 1978, and at 11am, the receptionist, who knew McKenney, saw him arrive and head to the room with Gwen Andrews, where they had an afternoon session of passion. The following day, McKenney then callously engineered a conversation with his friend Ron, in which he told Andrews that he suspected he was right, Gwen was indeed having an affair, and he recommended a private detective he knew, who could follow and check on her to confirm or deny this. He gave him the address to head to, a ground floor council flat in Poplar, in a block named Dolphin House. The private detective's name was Jennings. Sure enough, Childs was once again in character, posing as a private detective this time, and he offered his assistance to Andrews, who had of course never met John Childs. Andrews headed to Childs' flat in Dolphin House to discuss the case, and once he was inside, he sat at the table having a drink with Childs. McKenney then calmly stepped from behind the door once Andrews was seated, and shot his former best friend through the head with a silenced thirty-eight pistol. This time, alongside the traditional method of disposal, the killers had to go a step further because the death was meant to look like an accident. Mere disappearance was no good, as suspicion would focus upon McKenney due to his relationship with Gwen, which would become known. It had to appear accidental. Having carried out reconnaissance when the postcard was sent, it had been decided beforehand to take Andrews's car up to the River Neen, near Wisbeck, and drive it into the river. They hoped that it would appear that a drunk Andrews had headed up there to visit the girlfriend who'd sent the postcard, but had taken a bend too fast and driven into the river, and his body washed away due to the strong currents. McKenney took Andrews's Lincoln Continental car and drove it up to Lincolnshire, whilst Childs followed in his van. At a stretch of the River Neen, under cover of darkness, McKenney dressed in his full diving gear and drove the car into the water. Having first placed the empty vodka bottle that had Andrews's fingerprints on it inside the vehicle to make it further look like a drunken accident, they hoped that it would appear Andrew's body had been swept out of the vehicle by the currents and then ultimately out to sea. McKenney had to accelerate the vehicle to get it over the mud and the car had not floated but had sunk immediately and turned over. McKenney had waited for it to flood before escaping but due to the mud had some difficulty in climbing out of the river. He was picked up by Childs, and the pair then drove back to the flat in Poplar, where they dismembered and burned Andrew's body. The car was found not long afterwards by anglers, and it appeared that the story of the accidental death was accepted. Later, Childs claimed McKenney expressed rare grief and remorse about this killing, claiming McKenney said to him, Ron forced me to kill him by not walking out and giving me his wife and house. Twisted and deluded or what that, isn't it? My God. 
but the most disturbing and harrowing part of the confession, which had already chilled detectives to the bone due to its cold-bloodedness, was Child's description of how they'd disposed of the bodies. The wealth of detail that Childs provided convinced Cater and his team that he was telling the truth on the whole, but he thought that the grisly method of disposal was physically impossible to do on a normal living room fire. Cater went to see Professor James Cameron of the London Hospital Medical College to see if he thought that the claims could be true, and Cameron agreed to assist by staging a reconstruction. Obviously a human corpse could not be used for this purpose, so the forensic team acquired the next best thing, a 12 stone pig from a slaughterhouse, roughly the same size as an adult. The pig was taken to Childs' flat at Dolphin House, where Professor Cameron used the knives and bone saw that Childs claimed to have used to dismember the pig. In his own words, Cameron abandoned all surgical skill in favour of brute force and ignorance. In just over five minutes, he had the pig dissected and ready for incineration. A decent fire was lit in the 18-inch grate, and the cremation of the parts of the pig began with the head. Carefully recorded measurements showed that although the temperature in the fireplace itself reached more than a thousand degrees, the room temperature never went above 74 degrees Fahrenheit. But the detectives did notice that when the intestines were put onto the fire, the flames died down due to the fluid that was released from them. When Cater cross-checked this point with Childs, he told him that they'd encountered the same stumbling block but they'd got around the problem by drying out the victim's insides in front of the fire before placing the intestines onto it. Cater was also surprised to find that when he opened the front door into the corridor, no telltale smell of burning flesh could be detected. Inside was, however, a different matter. Cater was later to remark, The smell inside was something else. I don't think there was a man present who has ever been able to face a pork chop again. Can you imagine what human flesh must have been like? Careful forensic work in the flat also yielded more important evidence. Although the slaughterhouse had been prepared by effectively sealing the room using polythene sheeting, so much blood had been spilled about the place that there were still plenty of traces of it, albeit microscopic ones. A bullet hole was also found, just as Childs had described, that had been filled with wax and covered over. There was also blood on the curtains and plastic sheeting used to protect the carpet, on a knife used to butcher the bodies, and on a dustbin used to store the remains. It couldn't be said whose blood it was, as there were no bodies to test it against, but it could be ascertained that it came from at least two different people. The sheer amount of blood found at the scene pointed to just one conclusion. At least two people had died violently at the scene, and their bodies had subsequently been butchered. Although not conclusive in itself, small lead particles were also found in the grate of Charles's fireplace. A forensic examination confirmed that these were almost certainly bullet fragments that had remained in the bodies and had melted when the gruesome work of burning the bodies was being carried out. The major problem now was to find and arrest McKenney, and Cater didn't want him to know that he was being investigated for murder, thinking that this may have made the already dangerous man more wary, and ergo more likely to try to shoot his way out to avoid capture. 
However, just over a month after the Security Express robbery, the Daily Mirror newspaper carried a story that the Security Express robbery had now been linked to a murder investigation. Although by law they couldn't name the perpetrators, the use of nicknames such as Big H and the linking of names such as George and Terry Brett, Terence Eve and Ronald Andrews to the case could leave little doubt for McKenney if he read the report that police were onto him for a lot more serious offences than security van robbery. This forced Cater's hand really, and on the 27th of July, photographs and a full description of McKenney was issued to the press, bringing in a flood of reported sightings from the public. Most of these proved to be false, but one report that McKenney had been spotted driving a white Volkswagen Beetle through Ilford seemed to be more promising. A description of the vehicle and its registration number, BMG 128T, was issued and McKenney was sure enough spotted driving it by police who gave chase. However, after jumping two red traffic lights and leaving the pursuing police cars stuck in traffic, McKenney abandoned the vehicle and escaped on foot. He was to remain on the run for more than another seven weeks before reliable information led armed officers to a quiet close in Plaistow, East London. In the early hours of the morning, the occupants of one of the houses there were telephoned and told that the house was surrounded. McKenney was ordered out into the street, which he complied with peacefully and was handcuffed and taken into custody. Terry Pinfold was, as we said, already in prison for armed robbery when Charles confessed so all three main players, according to Childs, were now under lock and key. The police had also arrested 41-year-old Leonard Thompson and 34-year-old Paul Morton Thirtle, who Childs claimed had taken out contracts to kill George Brett and Frederick Sherwood, respectively, with the central conspirators. Both McKenney and Pinfold denied strongly the story that Childs had given when they were questioned, but on the strength of his confession... All four were charged with murder and remanded in custody to await trial. As Childs had already confessed, following this, his trial was separate to the other men and when he appeared at the Old Bailey on the 4th of December 1979, he pleaded guilty to six counts of murder. John Matthew QC for the prosecution briefly outlined the horrific details of each crime in a trial that was to last just two days before the judge, Mr Justice Lawson, sentenced Childs to life imprisonment on each count, although making no minimum recommendation of sentence. The full grisly details were spared being aired in court until November 1980, when Childs turned Queen's evidence against his alleged partners in crime, Terry Pinfold and Henry McKenney, who pleaded not guilty to the charges of murder against them. Charles spent the 15 months before the trial in solitary confinement for his own protection and when he appeared as a witness he told the court that he needed to come clean about the murders because in an attack of conscience he found it increasingly difficult to stomach what he'd done. Prosecuting counsel David Tudor Price QC told the jury that Charles's confession led the police to Henry McKenney and then outlined the brief history of the big man in the dock. Henry Jeremiah McKenney, also known as Big Harry or Big H, lived up to his nickname indeed. He stood some 6 foot 5 inches in height and was a powerful, athletic-looking 17-stone hard man, feared and respected alike by fellow villains. 
They respected his ice-cool nerve when he was committing armed robberies, yet they feared him because McKenney had an easy attitude to violence and the physique and fighting style that made him a man definitely not to be crossed. Those who did soon wished they hadn't. He was harder than the Guardian cryptic this fellow was. Being brought up in the Elephants and Castle area of London, where he'd been born in 1931, he'd been in trouble from an early age, spending time in Borstal and gaining himself several convictions for lorry hijackings, robbery, vehicle thefts and ABH. A spell in the army in which he served overseas in Germany was the genesis of McKenney's interest in vehicles and engineering, and he also learned to fly planes and became an experienced frogman while serving. Upon leaving the army following completion of his national service, the majority of McKenney's lawful employment was spent as a long-distance lorry driver, although he wasn't shy of committing the odd theft and robbery either. In 1953, aged 23, McKenney married a Rotherhithe girl, Eileen Killick, whom he went on to have two children with, Harry Jr. and Lavinia. The marriage was a stormy and violent one, however, and McKenney abandoned the family completely in 1960. He wasn't short of female company after this. On the contrary, he was charming and renowned as a lady killer due to his good looks and rugged physique. He was described by many as resembling film star Rock Hudson. And it was fair to say he wasn't just a dumb thug either. He had an extremely high IQ and was a very intelligent man. Aside from being a capable engineer and electrician, McKenney was, as said, a qualified pilot and a fully trained and experienced salvage diver, one who had invented and patented a revolutionary new air pump, a design now used by professional frogmen the world over. The patent for this alone would have made him a packet of money, but McKenney liked the buzz of a life of crime, and he found that he could make better, easier and quicker money from doing this. Throughout the 1960s and 1970s, he'd been involved in dozens of robberies, lorry hijackings and warehouse break-ins, and was well known to Scotland Yard for the hard and dangerous villain that he was. Likely someone that the police wanted desperately off the streets. And now, he was facing six life sentences. In the first of his four full days in the witness box, all the while avoiding the glaring hatred from the defendants. Childs, the star and indeed only prosecution witness, said that he lived in fear of his life because he'd broken the criminal's code by testifying against his fellow killers. 41-year-old Childs admitted, I'm scared because of the damage Mr McKenney can do to me and my family, because I've had the audacity to stand here and give Queen's evidence. I'm open to being killed myself. He then went on to give the remarkable tale of what he and his murdering corporator had done, as he had told to police. The tale was as fascinating as it was revolting and horrific, as you've just heard here in the episode. When Charles had finished giving his evidence, Defence Counsel Michael Mansfield QC called IRA prisoner Patrick Guilfoyle to the witness box. Guilfoyle told the court that Charles had admitted to him in prison that the men in the dock were innocent. He added that Childs had told him that he feared the police would charge his wife Tina with murder and that he had botched it all up. He said that Childs had told him that his wife was the best butcher in London. Guilfoyle said Childs often spoke about his hatred and fear of McKenney and that he told him that the people Childs had squealed on were innocent. 
A second prisoner, Philip Cartwright, who was serving a sentence for theft and wounding, also testified that Charles had indicated to him that McKenney was innocent and that he was naming the wrong people involved in the murders. Then the defence requested a psychological assessment of Charles be introduced. They'd requested one be made, which the judge agreed to without adjournment of the trial, and this was carried out by Barry Irving, a member of the permanent research staff at the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, who held a master's degree in social psychology, and who had acted as a legal psychological issues expert advisor since 1974. Because Childs refused an examination from Irving, however, he was not able to interview Childs, but instead was able to ex observe his examination-in-chief and subsequent cross-examination during the trial by the defence team of McKenney and Pinfold, and he had access to analyse relevant witness statements and depositions. Despite these limits, Irving was able to reach the conclusion that Childs displayed psychopathic behaviour and suffered from a personality disorder. He had a lack of guilt or empathy, he was impulsive and antisocial, and he displayed emotional instability. It was Irving's opinion that the disordered nature of Childs's behaviour and social sense was sufficient to cast doubt on his testimony. Severely psychopathic individuals may give statements in a bizarre, eccentric fashion, but they do not exhibit the signs of lying that people would be able to tell from their body language and the way that they deliver statements. But they do not exhibit the signs of lying that people would be able to tell from their body language and the way they deliver such statements. Because Irving believed Childs to be so severely psychopathic that he showed an abnormal lack of social pressures, he wouldn't exhibit to the court any signs that he was clearly lying. Almost as if he could sound extra convincing because he believed everything he was saying. Yet this report was ruled inadmissible as evidence on the 5th of November 1980. Childs had already been seen on several occasions following his conviction for murder the previous year and the two doctors who had examined him, doctors Wright and Franklin, had both given their opinion that on each occasion there had been no sign of mental illness or abnormality. Irving had no medical qualifications, and therefore his evidence was ruled not to be a medical diagnosis, rather more a prolonged study by someone with an extensive knowledge of the composition of psychopathy. However impressive and indeed accurate this may have been, as two medically qualified doctors had already submitted written reports about Childs' mental state and found him to be fine, legally speaking, Mr Justice May ruled that there was no evidence that had been submitted before him that suggested Childs had any mental disorder, and ruled Mr Irving's evidence to be inadmissible. In his closing speech, the defence counsel said, The case against McKenney rests almost entirely upon the word of one man. Childs, a man who is maniacally obsessed in thoughts and actions by violence. So despite the defence witnesses casting grave doubts on Childs' evidence, and the absence of any concrete physical evidence, plus the judge advising the jury as to the dangers of acting on Childs' evidence where it wasn't corroborated, the jury believed much of what they'd heard. On the 28th of November 1980, McKenney was found guilty of four of the gruesome murders at the Old Bailey, these being the murders of George Brett and his son Terry, and the murders of Frederick Sherwood and Ronald Andrews. He was found not guilty of the murders of Terence Eve and Robert Brown. 
Mr Justice May sentenced him to concurrent terms of life imprisonment for each murder, with a recommendation that he should serve at least 25 years. Standing the imposing figure that he was, 48-year-old McKenney snarled down from the dock as the verdicts were read out, causing many of the jury of ten men and two women to look away and avoid his intimidating gaze. The ruthless villain, whom notorious gangsters the Cray twins had tried and failed to recruit to their firm many years before, stood with his fists clamped tightly by his sides, seething as he looked around at the five prison guards that flanked him in the dock. From their point of view, they could see that McKenney's fingers were tattooed, with LTFC on his right hand and ESUK on the left. When they were intertwined, they spelt out the delightful message, Let's fuck. How classy is that, eh? Stay classy, San Diego. As the judge began passing sentence, McKenney moved forward and shouted, I think you're a hypocrite. Bring this farce to a close. Do your worst. I killed nobody. I've saved lives. You forbade me to bring these people here. You hid a psycho report from the jury. McKenney then turned to the jury, who had unanimously convicted him, and said, You are Mongols and right mugs. Terry Pinfold was also sentenced to life imprisonment after being found guilty of murdering Terence Eve. He was found not guilty of murdering George Brett, Robert Brown, and helping dispose of the body of Terry Brett. Both Paul Morton Thurtle and Leonard Thompson were found not guilty of the charges of murdering Frederick Sherwood and George and Terry Brett respectively. McKenney's and Pinfold's convictions had been based exclusively on the testimony of Childs, but if this trial were to happen today, there isn't likely a jury in the land that would have convicted either based on this evidence. A psychopathic self-confessed killer with a serious mental disorder that compelled him to lie repeatedly in a way undetectable to a jury. The psycho report that was kept from the jury, which was ruled as inadmissible, would have surely destroyed any credibility that Charles had as a witness. Because of Charles's testimony, McKenney and Pinfold spent 23 years in prison for crimes that they should not have been convicted for based on the available evidence. McKenney and Pinfold were both denied leave to appeal their convictions in 1981 and 1987, as the admissibility of the evidence of Barry Irving was still refused, and both remained in prison until 2003, when their case finally went to the Court of Appeal. At a three-day Court of Appeal hearing on the 30th of October 2003, Lord Chief Justice Lord Wolfe was told that after giving evidence at the original trial, Charles changed his story on numerous occasions. Edward Fitzgerald QC for McKenney called psychiatric evidence to show that Childs, who had long since retracted his accusations against the pair, was a skilled fabricator and highly intelligent psychopath who would say anything at any time when it suited him, he added. The jury did not know he was a person who suffered from a serious psychotic personality disorder. No one should be convicted on this man's word. David Sumek, a consultant forensic psychiatrist, said at the appeal that Child suffered from multiple personality disorders comprising of psychopathy, narcissism and compulsive lying. During the hearing, it emerged that at the original trial, Attempts to tell the jury about Charles's mental state that would have reflected this were ruled inadmissible. 
The court also heard revelations about the 1980 trial that thinking about the verdict boggles the mind. Although Pinfold was found guilty of having procured McKenney to murder Terence Eve, ergo the murder of Eve, McKenney was acquitted at the Old Bailey of having committed Terence Eve's murder. So that makes about as much sense as having an ashtray on a motorbike, doesn't it? How were these two fellas imprisoned for so long? Mr Fitzgerald revealed that Childs had admitted to more murders from prison, claiming at least another six. But these confessions had been discredited for being vague and unsure ones, unlike those with the rich detail of the six murder-incorporated killings. The one case that there was felt some substance to, CPS lawyers decided that there was not enough evidence to proceed with a prosecution against Childs for. Mr Fitzgerald said this showed Childs to be either a fantasist who made up elaborate tales of gruesome murders for which he claimed responsibility, and whose evidence should be disregarded therefore, or, if the confessions were true, then the jury at the original trial had been profoundly misled. He went on to say that Charles had retracted his accusations against Pinfold and McKenney many years before, and had written a series of letters to various people, including Terry Pinfold, admitting that he had perjured himself at the original trial in 1980 in order to secure an early release from prison which it seems that he truly believed that he would, after confessing to six horrific murders, one of them being a ten-year-old boy. Yeah, dream on, pal. Mr Fitzgerald also challenged the claim that Childs had made of how he disposed of the bodies by dismembering and burning them on a domestic fire grate. The original experiment had involved having to hold a board in front of the fire no less than 37 times to maintain a sufficient draft to create a furnace sufficient enough to destroy the pig used in substitute for a human body. Yet Charles had claimed that although the process was time-consuming, incinerating the victims was easy, and he was in a chair having a drink, very relaxed, whilst the body parts were burning. Lord Wolfe said, My common sense told me that it was a pretty unlikely story when speaking of reading Childs's account. It also emerged that before the 1980 trial, there were even doubts within the Metropolitan Police about whether Terence Eve had actually been murdered at all. James Harrison Griffiths, a retired detective chief inspector, said that he attempted to investigate Eve's disappearance in 1976, but was warned off by Commander Bert Wickstead, at the time who was the head of the Serious Crimes Group. Mr Harrison Griffiths said that he pursued several leads and alleged sightings of Eve, but personally concluded that he was dead. But he also revealed that Eve would have had good reason to disappear of his own free will because there was a warrant out for his arrest in connection with the hijacking of £75,000 worth of stereo equipment and Eve was facing five years in jail as a result. He said, There was a conflict between senior officers my chief superintendent was encouraging me and Commander Wickstead was discouraging me. There were politics involved. Commander Wickstead told me that Terry Eve was living under an assumed name in South London and told me that my future in the CID would be short-lived if I didn't stop this inquiry. It has been suggested that Eve was a protected police informant, but again this has never been substantiated. On the 15th of December 2003, McKenney and Pinfold walked free from the Court of Appeal after both men had their convictions formally quashed. Both men, now frail and gaunt, 
after suffering ill health through the sentence. Pinfold had actually been released from prison two years before, and he was now 70 years old and had had no less than six strokes during his sentence, now left a physical wreck with serious bowel and heart problems. McKenney was 73 and nowhere near the prime physical force he once was. Instead, he too was now pale and weak after contracting emphysema whilst in prison and suffering a near-fatal dose of pneumonia. When the convictions were formally quashed, Lord Wolfe said that fresh evidence showed that Charles was indeed a pathological liar. Sitting with Mr Justice Aikins and Mr Justice Davis, the judge said they were unable to say where the truth lies as to these terrible murders and that the evidence of Charles although corroborated to some extent, was not capable of belief. Outside the court, both proper free men for the first time in 23 years, Pinfold and McKenney hugged everyone in sight. McKenney said, I'm shattered at the moment. I'm very relieved. It's been a long time coming. It's 23 years too late. The whole case should never have got to court in the first place. It was a fiasco. Pinfold added, I can't believe what we've been through. Charles gave his story, and looking at the evidence, he was proved a liar. Much of the information we have now was known back then. Why wasn't it at my trial in 1980? Why indeed, eh? It was claimed afterwards that Pinfold and McKenney were seeking compensation of up to a million pounds each for their years of wrongful imprisonment but it's not reported as to their success, if any, in this venture. Henry McKenney lived his remaining years quietly and out of the public eye following his release, before he died on the 18th of July 2016. Terry Pinfold is still alive and lives quietly in Essex. And what of John Childs? Much of what Childs says can only be taken at face value. He's a psychopathic, pathological liar. Even his past history is sketchy. For example, it's claimed by McKenney's ex-wife Eileen that John Childs isn't even his real name. Rather that he's a man named Martin Jones who hailed from a part of Wales and adopted the name Childs after a former resident of the flat where he lived. The only thing that can be substantiated about him is that he was married with two daughters and had a lengthy criminal record, although for petty crimes of theft or property damage, and before his conviction, never involving violence. He's also known to have spent some time in the army as a sapper, but was discharged after just nine months' service, after being convicted of burglary. His time and location of service has never been revealed. He's told that many stories now, that it's unclear what is fictional, and what can be substantiated as truth. He may even believe his own lies. In 1998, a journalist for the People newspaper was contacted by Childs, who claimed that he wanted to confess to a further five murders from his prison cell, the further killings that were alluded to at the appeal of both Pinfold and McKenney five years later. In typical journalistic drama, the reporter describes how, over a series of meetings at Her Majesty's Prison's Long Larton in Franklin, just how terrifying Charles is, and how he seems to only really come alive when discussing killing. Yet unlike his confessions to the Murder Incorporated killings, Charles's confessions to these lack in rich detail, and that is why, barring one, they've all been disregarded as pure fantasy. Charles began by saying, I know I'm going to die in jail. 
There's a few things I'd like to get off my mind before I go. A few skeletons still in my cupboard. He then went on to detail his earlier claimed catalogue of murder before the murder incorporated. The first occurred when Childs was serving a sentence for burglary in a Kent Borstal and was another young offender in the same wing. For reasons he never went into, Childs claimed to have dropped a £60 block of concrete onto the youngster's back from the top of some stairs, smashing his spine. He said, He was in his death throes, flapping like a pinned butterfly. I was told later that he died. The second was a complete stranger who Childs claimed to have stabbed to death in Hillingdon, Middlesex, in 1965. He said, Someone attacked a black mate of mine and slashed his face with a razor. One night I went looking for vengeance and stabbed two people. The man I killed was in a pub with a bunch of mates. They were national front types and I was with my black girlfriend Joan. They followed us outside and started making remarks. I was throbbing with hate. I had a knife, picked out one of the group and ran the blade into his chest as hard as I could three times. I never knew his name. Victim number three was a police informer. One evening in 1966, Charles claimed he was in a drinking club in Hornsey, North London, run by the Cray Twins, when the informer was hauled before a crowd of villains who put him on trial in the club and a kangaroo court. Found guilty of grassing, Charles presided as judge and executioner, saying, He was found guilty. I went to my car and I got a five-shot revolver and shot him twice at close range. I was told the Crays were not pleased, but I never heard anything more about it. The fourth murder Charles claimed was a stranger who approached him in a pub near his home in Bow in East London in 1978 when Charles was halfway through cutting up one of the victims he was later sentenced to life imprisonment for killing, Ronald Andrews. He said, My wife had left me and I was depressed. I went out for a drink. A bloke started a conversation with me. I told him I didn't want any company but he wouldn't let up. I left the pub and he followed me outside. He punched me in the face so I stabbed him with my diver's knife. I propped him up and dragged him to my front door a hundred yards away. Once inside, I finished him off with a two-pound hammer. Then I had to spend another two days cutting him up and burning him. At that time, I was prepared to kill at the drop of a hat. It never bothered me at all. The only confession Charles made that had some weight and that could be proper substantiated as having the basis of truth was at the murder of 60-year-old petrol station attendant Gordon Snowden, who was discovered beaten to death in his office in the Lincolnshire village of Sutton Bridge in April 1979. Six months earlier, Childs claimed that he and McKenney had called at Gordon Station following murdering Ronald Andrews and dumping his car in the nearby River Nee. Fearing that Gordon would remember the two strangers with a London accent after the car was recovered, Charles claimed he went back alone shortly afterwards to secure his silence, saying, I battered him to death with a cosh in his office and took the till to make it look like robbery. He was an old boy and when I look back I'm sorry, but in those days I was ruthless about eliminating risks. It may sound silly, but I'm telling this now because I think that man may have relatives and I'd like them to know the truth. The murder of Gordon Snowden still officially remains unsolved, with the CPS deciding that there was never enough evidence to pursue a conviction against Childs. 
The other killings that Charles confessed to, apart from this one, have all been disregarded as pure fantasy. He's particularly vague about names and dates, and they've just been deemed another lie to fuel Charles' grandoire need for attention. He's been moved to several different prisons in the UK throughout his 39-year incarceration now, as he has a history of riling authorities with complaints, protests and antagonism. Following a near-devastating stroke that he suffered in 1996, he's in poor health and is frail, long since divorced from his wife Tina and disowned by his daughters. Yet even as he approaches 80 years old, Charles retains the lifelong narcissistic personality and desire for infamy that he's always had. You kind of get the feeling that this guy certainly is exactly where he needs to be. He's appealed his life sentence in 2012, having served 32 years following new medical evidence that Charles suffers from a severe personality disorder and his confessions in 1979 were as a result unreliable. But the appeal has been refused based on no compelling evidence being found that his personality disorders were of such severity that his confessions at the time were as a result unreliable. It's not denied that he has these personality disorders, just that they weren't at least at the time, not so that he didn't know what he was saying. Childs has now been told that he will die in jail, one of the list of UK prisoners serving a whole life tariff. So with this case, the only known facts are really that the six people mentioned by John Childs disappeared. None have ever been heard from again despite investigations and searches at the time each disappeared, so it's accepted that all six are dead, but is this at the hands of Murder Incorporated or others? There were no bodies or body parts ever found, despite searches, and the sole account of what happened to each is the single macabre story told by John Childs who self-confessed to perjury some years after his conviction, as well as a likely fantasy of being a serial killer responsible for the murders of at least 11 people, most of which were unsubstantiated. Although Charles tells a good story concerning the murders for hire, you've heard the tale that sent him, McKenney and Pinfold to prison here today and doubt has more recently been cast upon it, it can be argued that the reasons he claimed were behind each killing don't massively stretch credibility. The bad blood or reason for personal gain was certainly evident in the cases of Eve and Andrews, Brett and Sherwood. Is it possible that it is in fact true, or it's just that, a fantastic story, and that Charles has gone along with claiming responsibility for crimes he hasn't committed, for attention or notoriety, that have actually been committed by some other shadowy underworld figure. But a 40-year prison sentence would seem quite a steep price for claiming false notoriety though, wouldn't it? I mean, how notorious do you want to be? He'd seem to have absolutely nothing to gain from this, indeed, he's more likely to make himself a reviled and detested figure in prison because he turned Queen's evidence. I personally believe that all of the confessions Charles made to the six murders in 1979 were accurate, and although he is a pathological liar, I don't think that these confessions were a lie. It's unlikely that either Pinfold or McKenney would be convicted solely based on this testimony if tried today, but only because the evidence is unreliable, as Charles has a personality disorder. Unreliable, but not necessarily untrue. What do you think? This is a case that I'd long planned to cover here on the show, and when I was sorting out the order of cases for this series, 
It was the first one drawn out and a good one to start the series with, I thought. Yeah, that's sometimes how I decide the order, at random like that, just drawn out. It's a real shocker, this tale, isn't it? One that does raise many talking points, and I'm unsure of how familiar a tale it is, really, outside of the UK. It's one that I first learned of some years ago now, but it took a bit of research to get the full story into a decent-sized episode. A longer-sized episode, as I'm looking at recording now. Luckily, I love a bit of crime researching and writing, and it's a good job that it's my passion. So as I said at the outset, nothing too drastic has changed here on the show during the break. There's still a very active True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group with what I hope will be a very active thread for discussion about this week's episode contained inside. I'm keen as ever to hear your thoughts about the case, what kind of a nutter you think Charles is, if McKennian Pinfold were as culpable as he claimed, even record and send your best Ray Winstone impressions to me if you like. Completely up to you guys. You can reach me on the usual social media links by now, The links are all there with the show notes, or just look up the True Crime Enthusiast or a slight variation on that. If you see the creepy hand on the window, that's the badger. Same if anybody is interested in being a Patreon supporter of the show, there are 10 extra bonus episodes now available, with number 10 released today also, as it's the 1st of November. Double release day. I can be found on Patreon by searching out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, or there's a very convenient link with the episode show notes as ever, because I'm good like that. It is wonderful to be back for my break. I did need a bit of time to catch up and recharge, and I think I've had just long enough off. It seems ages really on one hand, but on the other, it's zip by. I've been chocker busy. I've missed doing the show each week though, and I'm glad to get back to it, because fair dues, I do love it. Thanks so much all for joining me here today, and for sticking around for the third innings of the show. I've put together the working list of cases for this series, although subject to some change of course, and if I say so myself, I've found some that I hope you find as interesting as I have. On that note, I hope you can join me again next week for another tale. So until we speak next, I have been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all happy and safe times, and I shall catch you soon. Take care all, thanks for being enthusiastic, and goodbye for now. Thank you.